1: Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest, I'm Michael Adams and this is part two of Rugby League Reflections, a one-day conference to mark 21 years of Tom Brock activities. You heard session one in our last episode, today is the second session and we'll just get straight into it. So kicking it off is my friend Andy Carr, uh, a librarian just like I am and and Andy's presentation is titled Reading the Game, Exploring Rugby League News 1920-1973 to via Trove. And in this talk, Andy goes into the history of Rugby League News and looks at it as a magazine, as well as looking at the efforts to digitise it, which the State Library of New South Wales and the National Library of Australia and the Tom Brock Collection all got together to uh, make sure every issue of this magazine is now digitised and freely available. So I'll let Andy tell the the biggest story, but I just wanted to, to say that as librarians, I think we are often guilty of taking things as assumed knowledge. So for anyone who hasn't used Trove before, for anyone who doesn't really know how to access rugby league news, uh this gives you some great tips. Uh and for everyone else, it's it, it's also a really interesting look at the history of this publication. So like myself, like my co-host Andrew, like like no doubt the rest of you, Andy is very passionate and knowledgeable about rugby league history. So a really enjoyable look at this pivotal publication. So take it away, Andy.
0: Hi, everybody. It's great to see so many library nerds here today. So fellow library workers, library library users. It's awesome. Um, If you went to any NRL games this season and bought a copy of Big League, you might have noticed the words celebrating 100 years on the cover. Big League, which began publication in 1974, is only part of the story. Uh, I'd like to take you back to a time in rugby league before big league, before state of origin, before the Winfield Cup, before Arco and Quail, and long before the Super League War. Back to a time when rugby league news was the official source of, well, rugby league news. And as we'll see, it was so much more than that. Right. For 54 seasons, rugby league news was the official match program of the New South Wales Rugby League. And for the sake of brevity, today I'll use that name, although, as you all know, it really was the New South Wales Rugby Football League until 1984. Uh, if you went to a match between 1920 and 1973, this was the publication you'd bought at the ground. This was where you could find out which players were in the team for, for today's game, where you could read news from, from the club you supported and get the official point of view of the New South Wales Rugby League. Today I'll be tracing the historical de- de- development of Rugby League news. We'll see some of the key moments in its history up until the final issue in 1973. I'll also be talking about the recent digitisation project that has made Rugby League news available online in its entirety, and we'll discuss how to access it freely online via the Trove database. I aim to show how having access to Rugby League news online is a total game changer for Rugby League historians. Okay. In the inaugural season of the New South Wales Rugby League in 1908, spectators could purchase a program at matches for a a penny. A very humble affair, it was essentially a single sheet of cardboard printed on both sides containing a few advertisements and a list of players for that day's matches. These were a carryover from the New South Wales Rugby Union, which which continued to produce single-match programs like these up until 1923. Not many of the early rugby league programs have survived and fewer have survived intact. There are a small number in the archives of the New South Wales Rugby League. For example, here's one from the controversial Kangaroos versus Wallabies match at the end of season 1909. It includes the rules of Northern Union Rugby... Northern Union Rugby Union Football for the Rugby Union aficionados in, in attendance. Now, Tom Brock spent many a day in the Phillips Street headquarters of the Rugby League in the 1980s photocopying items of interest from the archives. This included match programs and scrapbooks. Tom's photocopies now form part of the Tom Brock collection at the State Library of New South Wales, such as this program from the Australia vs New Zealand test played on the 6th of June 1908, won by Australia 14 to 9. The Collection also has a few original programs, like this one, from, from the 30th of May, 1914. It's in such poor condition that I didn't have the heart to turn it over to the other side. It was a program from the South Sydney Newtown game on that day, which Souths won 11 to 9. Uh, in 1913, Harry Hamill produced a short-lived magazine called Rugby League Record. Uh, I can't tell you too much about it because the State Larrabee's copies are no longer with us. They've been reported missing since 2008. So if you see them on eBay, please give me... Give me uh, <laughs> I imagine, though, the Rugby League record was modelled on the Victorian Football League's football record, which had commenced publication in 1912, which is the Australian Football League's official programme today. So the New South Wales Rugby League's own weekly publication, Rugby League News, arrived on the 1st of May, 1920. And as its masthead solemnly declares, it was a journal devoted to the interest of rugby league football and containing the only authorised list of names, numbers, colours, and positions of players. The first issue was printed in black and white, was 16 pages in length, and editor Harry Hamill spelled out the object of rugby league news on page three. Just have a quick look at that. I won't read the whole thing, but part of it says: We hope to arouse your interest by giving greater publicity to our doings. For too long have our ideals been misunderstood. This journal has become a necessity. We have been galvanised into activity. By giving you at all times in concise form the latest and brightest of news, written by the foremost journalists of the day, a standard of excellence will be set and maintained. Our goal is to make our our code the worldwide rugby of the future. We welcome critics. We feel we have nothing to lose if we heed the public demand. So there were lofty ideals for Rugby League News from day one. Ostensibly, Rugby League News is the official match programme. So as you'd expect, much of the space was given to listing the teams for each weekend's games. All games for the round was were spread throughout each issue. So here we have Glebe taking on Annandale at Birchgrove Oval in the first round of season 1920. The lineups for the lower-grade competitions were included too, as you'll see underneath the the first-grade teams here. And the centre pages of rugby league news were were reserved for the big games, like double-headers or the match of the round. Here we have two matches that that took place concurrently, East versus Balmain at the SCG, and South v West at the neighbouring agricultural ground. Uh, As with any primary sources, we urge you to exercise caution. The team sheets list the players that each club expected to field on that day. Rugby league news went went to print several days before the weekend's matches, so the lists may not be an accurate record of who actually ended up playing. So you might need need to corroborate this information with newspaper reports and and with the club's annual reports, which usually list the number of matches for each player at, at the end of the season. In times of, oh sorry, um, yeah. uh, As the official organ of the New South Wales Rugby League, Rugby League News often gave free rein to the game's administrators. They used Rugby League News to, to to defend their decisions or to go on the attack against the game's critics. In the first two issues, for example, Secretary Horry Miller went on the offensive against the amateur sports authorities, who criticised the Rugby League for allowing Sydney University, an amateur club, into the first-grade competition. Miller's open letter to James Taylor of the Amateur Sporting Federation included these choice words. Your tirade against the league was nothing but an attempt to prevent the university students from advancing with the athletic times and from throwing over the obsolete code of, of union football. Your ill-advised outburst was was received with the contempt it merited. Fighting words from (laughs) Horry. In times of controversy, rugby league news allowed the rugby league to control the narrative. Take, for example, the axing of the Glebe Club from the competition at the end of the 1929 season. Uh, In his 2014 book, An Act of Bastardry, historian Max Soling details the machinations and backroom deals at Phillips Street that led to the Boundaries Revision Committee report and the subsequent elimination of Glebe from the competition. Rugby League News virtually ignores the elimination of Glebe. Uh, In League President Jersey Flegg's welcome to season 1930, Glebe is afforded but a passing reference. So he says... Though the present worldwide depression must leave its mark on all sections of the community, the President su- suggests that with the elimination of the Glebe Club and the redistribution of, of, of boundaries, the standard of play in the metropolitan area will be on a higher plane than it has for several seasons past. Definitely pl- a glass half full guy, that Mr. Flegg. When flicking through the pages of rugby league news, you'll notice some regular features that that have endured through many years of publication. Personal Chatter was a regular column that ran from 1920 to 1930. Clubs contributed newsworthy paragraphs about up-and-coming players and about what the former club legends are up to these days. And Club Notes. From the 1930s on, each club was given space for newsworthy notes about players and officials. There were regular columns like Prowling with the Tiger, From Where the Sun Rises, i.e. the East, and From Over the Harbour, and Newsy, Newtown Notes. For me, columns like these provide a flavour of the game and they bring the game's characters to life. Some other things I've noticed about Rugby League news. For one, the cover price. In 1920, you could get a copy for tuppence or two pennies. At the same time, a penny and a half bought you a copy of the Herald or the Telegraph. And throughout most of its life, rugby league news cost twice the price of a daily newspaper. And in comparison, the weekly magazine, the Bulletin, tended to cost four times the price of a daily newspaper. Um, Except, I I noticed in 1960, when for some reason, both the Bulletin and the Rugby League news would set, set you back a shilling, approximately 10 cents. Uh, Official match programs for grand finals and international matches were badged as Rugby League News and they'd have full colour covers, more pages than usual and may have cost you up to twice the regular price. In its final season, 1973, Rugby League News sold for 10 cents during the regular season with the grand final issues spiking to 20 cents. And while on the subject of covers, as we've seen already, the, the covers of earlier issues were nothing fancy. Uh, The earliest issues were printed in black and white, and from 1926, the covers were printed on coloured paper, typically blue or pink. During World War II, the covers were back to being printed on the same paper as the rest of the publication, probably an austerity measure during the war. Uh, At that time, full-page ads began appearing on the front cover, such as this one from 1942 for the Sun newspaper, with a well-known character being covered there, Oddly enough, in 1941, the front cover sponsor was the Daily Mirror. And in 1942, it was rival newspaper The Sun. Um, but Rugby League itself returned to the front cover in 1949, so there were no more front page ads. Okay. A real highlight for me are the, are the covers of Rugby League news for international matches. Full colour, glossy and quite spectacular. So we've got here, for example, the first test of 1936, Australia beating England... 24 to 8, and the first test between France and Australia in 1951. France 26, Australia 15. A couple more examples. Do we have any Americans in the audience today?
2: No. Hey. (laughs) Just as I thought.
0: (laughs) So so the cover on the left is from the American All Stars Tour in 1953, which has been the subject of a recent book. no, no helmets required. And Sydney won that game, 52 to 25, in front of 65,000 spectators. Um, the one on the right is the third test between Australia and New Zealand, 1963, Australia winning 18 to 17. Um, I just wanted to mention quickly the one on the left. You can see there's a little bit of writing under Rugby League News. I think it says something like the the ground being being, being hard. That's that's Tom Tom Brock. So Tom Brock's collection of programs, he tended to write a whole lot of lot of notes. So just to show you the next one, so full full of comments, and it's usually about the weather, about, about the crowds, the fact that the gates closed at two two thirty when ten thousand people were waiting out, out, outside the ground. So you get a lot of things you won't see else, elsewhere. He's got the scrums and the penalties, the halftime score. Bit of a bit of a, bit of a train spotter, out Tom. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, rugby league news continued on until the end of season nineteen seventy three. The rebranding of rugby league news as the, the, the big league was part of, of new league president Kevin Humphreys' plan to revitalize the image of rugby league. That story is for another day. They're gonna move on to digitization. So the digitisation of rugby league news in 2017-18 was the result of a partnership between the State Library of New South Wales, the National Library of Australia and the National Rugby League. And I've got to thank Terry for his, his role when, when he worked there, he was instrumental in getting, getting the parties together and, and having, having it sort of happen a little bit more quickly than what it would have otherwise. So the first step was was to determine which of our collections had the best copy of each issue. Magazines published almost 100 years ago don't always age well, especially when you can consider where they've been housed over the years. For example, some of the State Library's copies of rugby league news belonged to sports journalist J.C. Davis. And when the State Library bought the Davis Sporting Collection in 1974, it had lived in a garden shed for several decades. Um, there's also the challenge of scanning pages from bound volumes. This can be tricky be- because the binding means you can't always get in and scan the inner ed- edges of-, of the page. But fortunately, several of Davis's copies, and many of Tom Brock's copies, had not been bound. So this made them much e- easier to scan. But the downside of having loose issues is they haven't had, had a binding to-, to-, to protect them. Thus, they can be in pretty shocking condition as well. So, nonetheless, we've made the best copy of each issue available for digitisation. And where neither library had a copy, the National Rugby League kindly stepped in and and filled our gaps. Um, The National Rugby League also provided financial support for the project, for which we are eternally grateful. Now, scanning can be a painstaking process. So not only do we have to ensure that scanned copies are clear enough for people to read, we have to also make sure that, that, that the machines can read them for its machines to undertake a process called optical character recognition, where a page of rugby league news, which, which is seen as a photograph, is, is converted into text that, that we can search via Trove. And it's particularly, particularly difficult for 19th century newspapers, whose fonts are very different from those that are used now, but it was still pretty, pretty, pretty tricky for rugby league news. Now, how do you get to see the digitised issues of rugby league news? How many people are familiar with the Trove database? Good. Almost everybody. That is awesome. So the National Library of Australia coordinates Trove and all the state libraries and many university and public libraries contribute to it. Uh, Trove is many things to many people. It's a catalogue of all the books, journals, maps and other materials in major Australian libraries. It's probably best known for its database of digitised newspapers from 1803 onwards. And now it's doing much the same for magazines. So the Australian Women's Weekly... The Bulletin, Building, Building Magazine and now Rugby League News are some of the publications you can read and search online. You might have noticed that many publications on Trove cut out at 1954 and that's because publications from 1955 onwards are in copyright. Um, Trove needs to obtain permission from copyright owners to, to go further, you know, for the later things and that's happened for a small number of publications including the Canberra Times and the New South Wales Government Gazettes. But we're very fortunate to, to receive the blessing of the National Rugby League to go beyond 1954 and to d- digitise all the Rugby League news to 1973. Right, so Rugby League news lives in the Journals, Articles and Datasets section of Trove. This is where you can browse issues and search for particular articles. Uh, at present, searching in this section is a little bit more complicated than it is for searching newspapers. There is going to be a Trove upgrade in 2020, so I hope it's going to be a whole lot better then. Um, now, that's why I've, I've, I've prepared a little handout that, that gives you an easy way to search, so that, that should be coming around now. Um, I recommend you bookmark the links I've listed on page two of the handout because they're going to come in really handy. OK, so keep this link close by at all times. It enables you to browse a list of dates and choose the issue you'd like to view. You, you click, click on browse collection, which, which I've circled in red. Right. Then you'll get thumbnail images of, of the covers of the first 20 issues and use, use the down arrow that I've circled in red to choose another time period. So this is an effective way to find programs from a particular season or from a particular match. But what if you're looking for articles on a particular uh, topic, team or player? Then you need to go to the Journals, Articles and Datasets section of Trove and search by the keywords that interest you. For example, Dave Brown. Put names in inverted commas like you do with, with, with a Google search. And remember, though, that many in old articles and team lists, the player might just be na- named as D Brown. That's so not always full, full names that are used. Okay. So the search for Dave Brown finds over a thousand articles, but it's searched across all journals, not just rugby league news. So you can narrow the search by, by selecting rugby league news on, on the left-hand side, which brings the results down to a slightly more manageable 565 articles. Um, appreciating that searching for journal articles on Trove is a bit cumbersome, historian Tim, Tim Sherratt has developed a search tool that makes searching a lot easier. This is Tim's website, Explore Trove's Digitised Journals. That's worthwhile bookmarking that, that one as well. So first you choose Rugby League News from a, from a drop-down list of all, all the journals on Trove. And then, then you type in your search words. Right. So this then takes you in, into Trove to show you the search results. Um, what, what, what Tim has done is, is to construct a search using a search phrase plus the unique code for Rugby League News on Trove. So knowing that unique code, it's possible to search Trove without using Tim's website. Um, so that is to go straight into Trove's journals, articles, and data sets page and, and, and construct the search yourself. Um, don't worry, the unique code is in your handout. So you don't need to remember nla.obj-598579045 every time you search. That is a concussion test. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right so i'll leave leave it there as you can see i'm pretty excited about this excellent resource that's now available to to researchers anywhere anytime and i'm hoping it'll be used to uncover many more hidden stories from rugby league's past thank you
1: okay so next we have Haynes, who's also a member of the tom brock committee and who actually uh, organized this whole conference. So she did an amazing job of, of getting everything together for the day. So uh, you really have her to thank probably more than anyone for the fact that you're able to hear these presentations. And, and on top of that, she delivered one of my very favorite presentations of the day. So has a, a very natural way. She's, she's uh, quite the raconteur, as you'll hear, with this story. So uh, Kath's presentation is titled Founded in a Fight, Why the founding story of the New South Wales Ladies Rugby Football League in Sydney 1921 deserves a place in Rugby League's pantheon of great internecine fights. Uh, And I think it's a recurring theme of our show in general, the fact that nothing ever changes in Rugby League. And Rugby League administration, no matter the era, no matter the geographical location, always seems to fall into the same bad habits. And so it shouldn't surprise you that nothing was different with the, the founding of the New South Wales Ladies' Rugby Football League in the 1920s. So I'll let Kath tell the story, but this uh, was was a very entertaining presentation.
0: How are you, Kath?
3: Okey-doke, all right. Founded in a fight. What organisation was founded in a fight? Could it be the New South Wales Rugby League? Okay, Well, so it was the New South Wales Ladies' Rugby Football League back in 1921. And here's a cartoon from the Arrow in the week after their inaugural match, which they played before 20 to 30,000 spectators. And it shows what happened on the day of their inaugural match because the Rugby League community in Sydney just really just kind of like fractured in two. Okay? And that's the story I'm going to be telling today. Um, and the reason I'm telling that story is because this story actually belongs in the history of women's football because 1921 was a peak year in terms of women participating and playing just after the Great War. And it belongs in the history of women playing rugby league, which we really need to get a bit bigger. But you can also put it in the mainstream history of the game, which is typically the men's game. But when you look at this story through the prism of the fight, you see that it's got uncanny resemblances to all these fights that have been running through the rugby league since it's founding day and we're still seeing the shenanigans today, all right? So this is the shenanigans in 1921. But in terms of this cartoon, it gives the impression that the rugby girl, that's what they called them, the rugby girls, the rugby girl that's been birthed in this image of a fractured football, right that she caused the fights. And they're all fighting over the rugby girls and whether they should play or not. But this is the thing, we're talking about rugby league here, all right? No, she didn't cause the fights. This picture, the metaphor's more like this. She was some big hand in the sky, they dropped the rugby girl down, and bang, she's in the middle of the fights that are already going on. That is what happened with the rugby girl. Very few of the fights about this match had to do with women playing the game. It was all the infights that were going on amongst the men who ran the game. okay. So, and some of these fights that were going on in 1921 went all the way back to some of the foundation fights in the Code. And one of the really big ones that was going on in 1921, amongst these pioneer guys that were running the game, was the rolling of J.J. Giltman, as in the J.J. Giltman shield, which happened in 1909. So he was the founder of the Code, and then in 1909, they, basically the Sydney club split in two. North, not north, east were actually head of the pack to roll the founders on the accusation that they were being a bit crook and misappropriating funds and south were, on the, south were on the side saying, no, we, we defend the, the, the founders. Anyway, the founders got ousted and this was never actually resolved. And in the end, Gilton went bankrupt in 1914. There was a lot of bad feeling amongst the players about how the founders had been treated. But then the Great War came along and this was never resolved, this this open wound still in the Rugby League. And if you look at 1920 editions of the Rugby League news, they don't mention the founders' names. They don't mention them. There's one photo of Giltner with the kangaroos. Other than that, they sidestep it. And I think one of the stories even tries to say that the birth of Rugby League in Australia is because of basketball, Baskerville from New Zealand. <laughs> so there's a bit of sidestepping going on here. Gosh, I'm really digressing here, but it's such a good story. Um, so anyway, this is going on in 1921, because at the beginning of 1921, James Giltman tells the League's foundation story in the press. Now, a lot of you probably heard this story. You know the one about Alec Burden's broken arm and at Victor Trumper's sports store and then they hear the old, old golds are coming to town, the New Zealand professionals, they organise a match, they get the agricultural showgrounds, they get Delling <coughs> Messenger, put on a game and use that money to start their own code. Well, Gilton was telling this story in 1921 because he was basically saying, hey, I wasn't crooked, I may have done a few things wrong, but I always had the best interest of this game at heart, as did a lot of other people that were involved in the founding of the game. And right now, as the league's getting bigger, you seem to be forgetting about some of these people that dug the well. OK? So that is why... How do I change it? Just... OK. So that is why I chose this as the quote for my thing. An organisation founded in a fight will have the urge to fight as a heritage. Anyway, but then last night, when I was trying (coughs) to unpack how all this fed together, I was up to 80 slides and I realised I was writing a thesis because this is actually based on my unfinished thesis that I put away two years. And I was trying to rewrite it again on PowerPoint and it was getting really crazy. And so then I realised I had to make some really, do some really ruthless editing at the last minute, and I've decided what I'm going to do is just tell you the story, show you glimpses of some of the small fights that were going on, just give you a feel for it, because I can't go into that depth, and I'm going to see how far we get in the story, and then Terry, at the five-minute-to-go mark, is going to let me know, and I'm going to fast-forward to the match. <laughs> All right, so we'll see how far we go. All right, is that how I do it? OK, But I know you all want to see what women playing rugby league look like in 1921, so that's why I've just brought that up the front so we can get it out of the way. Here they are, the Sydney Reds and the Metropolitan Blues. This is what they look like. Okay, but we're talking about rugby league here, right? There wasn't one women's football match on this day. Oh, no, 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 we're talking rugby league. There was a split. There was another women's match on the same day. Oops. Oh, my goodness. Tipping over the water. And... It was actually a sanctioned rugby league match because the rugby girls match, it wasn't sanctioned. The New South Wales rugby league had put a ban on it. But yet, we have the eastern suburbs, yes, the dirty dogs at Royal Giltman, holding a rival event on the same day and also staging a women's football match. So I'm gonna start you on the story towards that fracture on the day and see how far I get. Terry? Right, so how does it all begin? It starts with these images coming in from England and France during the war. Um, This grew out of that patriotic sort of idea of... um, Sorry, it's not the patriotic idea. This came out of the munitions factories during the war. So, you've got women breaching social norms here by playing football, but they got away with it in the war because they were doing men's work. And then, after the war, These matches were raising heaps of money for war charities, and so, as a result, they've got really (coughs) patriotic, nationalistic overtones, and they end up on the British Pathé Newsreel, because that's exciting national news. It goes all around the Antipodes, as well as photos. And what's going on with girls after the war is they all want to be modern girls, right? But the it girl of the modern girls in 1921 was these actual football girls, because there's initiatives starting up all over the place as a result of this. So these two girls, who barracked for the North Sydney Football Club, who won the Premiership in 1921, they look at this and think, OK, we would like to play rugby league, because that's the game we support. And, but they must have known they were breaching norms a little bit, because I think they must have rationalised, what's the worst thing that could happen? We write to the rugby league, they say no, but then they feed our letter to the newspaper for a bit of a laugh, so just in case they write under a false name, Miss Molly Page. That was not their names. And this letter arrives on the secretary's desk, Horry Miller. Okay, the guy who you saw blasting um, James Taylor in the Rugby League News just earlier, because he did a lot of tirades in the Rugby League News, this guy. All right, so it comes into him... And you can actually see he forgot the space bar on the business sheet when he added her to the business item. So he's probably thinking, oh, do I add this or not? But again, probably rationalise. What's the worst thing that could happen? They have a bit of a laugh and they say no. But what they didn't prepare for was that is not the worst thing that could happen. Because this is what happened. The 23 men of the General Committee of the New South Wales Rugby League decided on... In response to this letter from a girl to form a football club, they decided on the motion of Mr Khan, the most powerful man on the New South Wales Committee in 1921, a vice president, a management committee member, that the secretary should render every assistance to these unknown women to play football. Can I just say, this is a very unusual motion. They did not pass motions like this. They just didn't do it. They haven't treated it with the seriousness of what they would if the request had come from a male. So what is this? What's going on here? And why did 23 committee men let this through? And what's going on between Khan and Miller? Because if we actually look around a bit, the Rugby League News tells us that Miller this year is actually the busiest sporting official in Sydney because he's got a kangaroos tour to England to organise. And who's going on that tour? But Billy Kahn, the guy who's passed the motion. So this is a bit weird, and this is a cartoon from the Rugby League News, and it shows them getting into practice for their trip to England. So just have a look down the bottom, at they're getting into form for banquets. So how's this work? Oh, how'd you like that little joke we popped before I left where I dropped a women's football competition on our very busy secretary that's organised this trip for us to Sydney while we tittle off overseas. So obviously Khan had no intention of taking any responsibility for this motion but he's dropped it on the secretary. Okay, so there's something odd going on here and why did the committee men not pull this up? Because we find out the next day if they had given it due consideration the decision that they would have made which is on the right there which appeared in the evening news the next day the committee decided that the time was inopportune to form football clubs for girls, for women. That's the motion they would have passed if they had thought about it, those men. But that arrived in the newspaper too late because The Sun had somehow got wind of this motion and they'd already approached the secretary for comment and to interpret this motion. And this is what he'd already said. The members of the committee on the left Resolved that the league would give the lady every assistance possible and the secretary, Mr Miller, intends to invite her to call upon him to discuss her plans. So what's going on here? There's something quite odd. And what's Miller supposed to do now? Because now this has been in the paper, he has to call up these women. He has to have a meeting with them. right? He can't back out of that. But how does he go into that meeting? Is he representing that view on the right? Is he going to call them in and say, oh, we've changed our minds? Or is he going to act on the motion in the minute book? The one in the paper or the one in the minute book? All right. I don't think we'll ever know what Miller intended to really do at that meeting when he met these women, who he thought was only one woman, remember, and then two showed up because they used a false name. Because then he went into an ambush with the Sydney press, starting with the son who actually broke the first story. Let me show you a little bit of how it worked. There is actually two versions of this meeting, that came out. The first version was in the afternoon of the meeting, in the afternoon on the front page of The Sun. And they had a front page photograph, pioneers of women's football. So they're building this story up very quickly. okay. And they made out in this story that it was really the women that were driving all this, and Miller was just like a bit of a side player. Okay. So they talk about the women wanting to play because they'd seen the girls in England and France. But this is the interesting passage from it, and I reckon this came from Miller, because he was trying to distance himself from this. Mr Horry Miller, secretary of the Rugby League, was interviewed by the two young women today. And as a result, a meeting has been convened. All right? So it's sort of like what they're interviewing around to see who's going to be the best person to help them form Rugby League, and if they choose the Rugby League, they'll go with that. It's, it's a little bit odd. So let me show you. Now, this story, it was captured after the meeting had happened. So they, were, they weren't actually in the meeting. This appeared to be afterwards. The next story though was written by someone actually in the meeting room who actually saw what took place. And it took me a while to figure out who it would be because I was thinking it has to be someone big for Miller to let them in. And after a lot of research, I've fallen on this guy. W.F. Corbet, who was one of the most famous sports journalists in Sydney at the time, really big in boxing. he reported both the Jack Johnson fights, including the one in Reno against Jim Jeffries. He's much revered. But he's also got an interest in women's sport, and he's had that, that interest for decades, starting with swimming, because he also loves swimming. And he'd even written a story the year before that women should take up boxing, because it would keep them fit, as long as they didn't box in public. Okay? So he's got an interest in these modern girls becoming athletic. So he would have been interested to meet these women, Women, and I think what he actually did was he rang up, or it would have been something like, Horry, I'd like to meet these women, and he would not have been able to say no to this man. He's just too powerful. Okay, so would that have changed how Horry Miller behaved in the meeting? Possibly because he really liked to impress people like this. This is what he was all about, especially JC Davis at the Arrow, who was very good friends with this guy. Okay, all right, so where am I up to?
0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: Okay, so this is the representation he gives of the meeting. He makes out that Miller's a huge enthusiast for this. So he writes Mr. Miller is nothing if not gallant he was so prompt and encouraging in his reply that two rather surprised and uncertain young ladies found themselves at the rugby league rooms on Friday night, Friday submitted to an astonishingly business-like interrogation of their plans and capacities for tackling rugby league. Okay, all right, so the onus is coming on Miller and this is what he then writes about the young girls. Oh, When Miller got down to hard facts and suggested the girls should convene a meeting, she gasped, Oh, Mr. Miller, and nearly destroyed the handle of her handbag in agitation. And when the girls realised their photographs might appear in the print, they seemed very upset. (laughs) Okay, now these, the evening news was also there. Oh, goodness, I'm going to trip everything up. Those ones down the bottom, look at the expressions on their faces. They actually don't look very happy about this at all. Okay. what's going on here? Because this article combined with the other one, it gives the impression that Miller's actually driving this behind the scenes, so much so he's even organised the newspapers to be there to take these women's photos. That's the impression that article gets. But more likely it was something like this, that William F. Corbet found out when the meeting was and tipped off the sun, because this is what was going on this is one of the small fights. This is really a subplot, got nothing to do with Gilton and stuff that was happening at the time. There was a bit of a ding-dong going on from Miller, maybe Harry Hamill, with the Rugby League News defending the game against accusations of wild man, which had been in the Sun. And this is W.F. Corbet's <coughs> son, Claude Corbet, who is a specialist league reporter for the Sun. And so what did the Rugby League News do about this? All right. Let's start off with a bit of a cartoon, shall we? Let's have a Newtown player be eating, sorry, biting a baby's ear. We know of that fine tradition in Newtown. They like to bite <laughs> people's ears. Oh, they're doing it in 1921 in a cartoon, but it's a baby's ear. But then it says, nothing like this happened, although a certain press report would lead one, lead one to believe so. But that is nothing like... How do I the dummy spit that happened on the front page of the same edition of the Rugby League News, which was reporters and scare headlines. Now, this is very similar to Miller's voice in the James Taylor thing that we saw earlier. This is kind of how he talks. So I don't think it's Hamill, I think it's Miller. And it is a pity that reporters who cannot distinguish between a hard game of a rugger and a street brawl should command the columns of our daily press. This is the most powerful sport journalistic family in Sydney... Corbet is revered, his son is a league journalist and he's got two other sons that work for the Sun in sport. Oh my goodness. And can you imagine what other journalists were thinking at this, this happening? So my reading of this situation is maybe Miller was a little bit enthusiastic but it seems like he actually got ambushed at some level and the press had an interest in this story. They knew it was going to sell so many newspapers. So at the very least... I think we've got something going on there to lock Miller into this unfortunate motion. And it's quite possible Claude Corbet had actually been at that meeting when the motion was passed because he actually used to say he used to go to the meetings. Terry, I don't know if you know, can comment on that. But anyway, maybe later. Okay. all right, so where does it go from here? How are we going with time, Terry? It's 5 to 12. So how many minutes have I got left? Uh, 10 Oh ten! Oh my goodness! I mightn't have enough slides. All right. <laughs> I'll <have some> questions. <laughs> okay. So what actually happens then? True on his word, Miller. He schedules this meeting to form a women's football club, but it's like, could he not see this coming? Like hindsight, maybe. But he schedules it smack bang on the Friday night when the Queensland team is inside and the New Zealand team is in Sydney, right? for a triangular series because they all want to get on that kangaroos tour and these are the selection matches. And on the Friday night, he puts this meeting on at the league's headquarters, okay? And what actually happened, I haven't got slides for it, is 60 women turned up and they all want to play football. Five clubs were formed. Hang on, how about this? Billy Khan's wife was elected vice president. Was there any, like, sort of fights going on at home maybe about the kangaroos tour? Who knows? Who knows? All right? She turns up, they form this league and it's really loud, really <coughs> raucous. There's two reports in the paper and they're quite hilarious. But on Saturday morning, that's what Harry Sunderland from Queensland is reading in the paper. Now, I don't know if you know Sunderland, but he's a total hustler. A total hustler, total Queenslander, a hustler. <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to hustle his way onto the kangaroos tour. The tour that Can was made tour manager of. And not only that, he wants a meeting with the committee men that weekend, all right? Because he wants a New South Wales team to come up to Queensland, so that he can develop the game up there. But they keep saying no. And guess what? On the night that can't pass the minute about Molly Page, he also poo-pooed a New South Wales game going up to Queensland. All right. So what you're seeing is Sunderland's hungry for this information, but he's a journalist. And he's friends with all the journalists in Sydney, so I think he would have got a bit of information about this backstory from Claude Corbet, right? So he comes into Sydney and he reads this in the paper, can't get a meeting with the men who run the game because they're having meetings to form Women's Football Club, and on the Monday night, he basically... And actually, I'll show you some of the damage control for that in the Rugby League News. So after this meeting was formed... On the Monday, they published this cartoon. So, the rugby league's trying to pretend, oh, no, we just think it's a bit of a laugh, it's nothing serious. It's like a, it's a total sort of cover-up of what's actually going on. And down the bottom, you've actually got Miller taking applications for trainers for the women's football, and you've got Khan at the end of the line saying, say, sec, I've changed my mind about that trip to England. So, this is the sort of stuff Sunderland's reading at the moment, OK. And on the Monday night, he's a very clever man, Sunderland, because he would have known this was a huge embarrassment that was going on. But there was this trope around at the time, and that's what this, this bottom part of the cartoon is doing, that men were getting distracted by women, the new modern girls out in public space, that they're getting distracted by women. So what Sunderland does, he doesn't talk about this, but he does this most massive serve on the New South Wales Rugby League about not doing what they have to do for the game. So, in other words, fellas, come on, get your eyes back on the game. What is going on here? That's what he does that night. And at the end of it, he makes a threat that if you don't get your act together in here in Sydney, I'm going to find another New South Wales rugby league and form a rival New South Wales rugby league. So, he's really playing with that foundation myth. You know, you got, guys got upset with the rugby union well, all right, we're upset with you and we might do that to you now. OK, so I'm going to fast forward a bit. But what actually happens is the upshot of that is Miller is left on his own with this thing, whatever it was. The committee just says, uh-uh, we're not going near this thing at all now. OK, so what happens to make a short story, a long story short, Miller then gets quite enthused with the idea of women's footy and that was probably because he mentions this thing called summer nights football which he was quite obsessed with for the rest of his career trying to launch it quite a few times and he personally takes on board training the women, can you imagine these stories in the paper on the Sydney sports ground at night under electric lights which is a very special thing that only sort of first grade players get but he's there alone trying to train 80 women in how to play rugby league. Can you imagine what the newspapers are doing with this? They're just going, Oh, thank you. This is the this is giving putting so much coin in our coffers. Okay. But then the the women's league sort of disappears out of the press for a while. But then we start getting some funny cartoons like this in the Rugby League news. And this is uh, a wife of one of the people on the kangaroos tour, coming, one of the players, coming in saying, would you mind my baby, Mr Miller? OK, and a baby was kind of like a metaphor for the game. It sort of ran through that. And then another woman comes along and said, mind my baby too. Another one comes along, mind my baby too. Until the end, he runs off with this woman yelling, are you minding the babies, Mr Miller? And this is actually, this is the thing with the rugby league news. It's kind of like the NRL footy show, in a way. Because it's not just the big audience that's reading it, they're also cracking jokes in jokes for their mates in this this publication. So, you've got to understand that there's lots of layers going on here that might not be out in the public domain yet. And sure enough, it comes out a few days later, there's been trouble in the camp. There's been a split between Miller and the rugby girls. They've now parted ways. All right. So, at this point, I'm going to take you to the inaugural match. Okay, so here we are. We're jumping forward to the 17th of September, you know, the two cracked, the cracked football and the two different events. Okay, so three days before this match, and there's a huge crowd, 20 or 30,000 people have turned out to see this because they've been following this quite unusual story in the press and they want to see the climax. But what had happened three days before, the New South Wales moved to place a ban on any of its members or affiliates Participating on in this event on the grounds that what do you think, guys? Have a no. think. Why do you think they put a ban on this match?
0: It's not all for us. Hey. No insurance. Insurance.
3: insurance. What do we got? What else do we got? Health. Health. Yeah. the yeah. women? Yeah. yeah. And else? Just. Jealous. Jealous. <laughs> all right. I'll tell you <laughs> why. There's okay. Fantastic, guys. No, 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 none of that. It's because it was being backed by a private promoter. The ad was sitting there, guys. Mick Simmons. Yeah. Same model the league had used to start the game. All right? And that's why they're backing it. Okay? and But the ban wasn't directed at the women because, like, they can't ban the women. The women aren't members of the rugby league. The ban's aimed at four teams, four workplace teams from the City Houses workplace competition who plan to play their grand finals as the curtain raisers. Now, you've got to understand, this is a big competition. It might be an outside competition, but there are 20 teams in this competition. When you add that to the Sydney Warehouses competition, you've got another 16 teams. When you add it to the Australian Holy Guild competition, you've got another 16 teams. So There's about 40 or 50 teams in these outside competitions. That's quite a bulk. They do not want them playing. Or setting a precedent where they're playing at a match backed by a promoter. Okay, but because Delhi Messenger was going to launch, yes, the hero of the founding days was going to launch his Delhi M football. Yes, the Delhi M football was launched at this match, the very first one. Right? They had to extend their ban to their most revered pioneer player, Delhi Messenger, and put a ban on him. <laughs> it's really getting kind of... Is anyone getting echoes of this foundation story with Giltner? And where do you think the women probably got this model from? Probably from Gilton's stories, the foundation story in the press. It's the same model, OK? Right, but what, what they actually wanted was these city houses teams. They were supposed to be playing over at the East Charity Carnival. That's where the league wanted them. And not only that... Oh, what am I doing wrong? Ah... On the morning, the very morning of the women's match, they also put a notice in that the other City Houses team's going to play there too. And also, Messenger is going to give his goal-kicking exhibition now at the charity carnival. All right? Okay. But then, in the evening, the morning of this match, this is the secretary of the league, Earl Estate, Paul. force of nature would be the word you'd use to describe her. She came from a theatre family. Her grandfather was a boxer. Anyway, she writes a letter to the evening news explaining their side of it. And it's a different story to what was in this because in this newspaper article, it said that Miller had broken up with the leagues because there two promoters involved. And Miller agreed with the terms of the first promoter, but then for some reason that promoter dropped out and a second promoter got involved. And in this story he said that he didn't agree with, with what was going on with the second promoter. But this is what the ladies league said. And this has got to do with the charity carnival being put on the same date. This is all in the minute books, by the way, so they all know what's going on. <laughs> There's no surprises in this from their point of view. Miller knew full well that the ladies' match had been arranged for many weeks previous and advised us to accept the promoter's offer as the best put forward. So he said, take Mick Simmons' offer. Sorry, the promoter was Mick Simmons. Did I mention that? Yeah. OK, good. And he was quite pleased as our advisor that we had been taken up and put on our feet for the next year by a result of a good matching gait. So it's the same model as the league. Okay? But not only this, then again, when the ladies were approached by Mrs Green to play at her charity carnival, I'll show you who Mrs Green is in a minute, Mr Miller advised the ladies to play for themselves and reap the benefits again of a good gate. So they're also invited to this charity carnival. Okay, right, which brings us to the second women's match. What did they put on the field that day? Because this notice about the second women's match was only put in the paper that morning as well. So basically, this is Wally Webb, who is Secretary of East. I don't know what they did. Like, did they go out and try and round up people? for this game the day before but this is what they put on the field and this is billed as a women's match most of the players had hardly entered their teens; they were of a motley appearance arrayed as they were in dresses of diverse and weird colours and this is the clincher Surrey Hills wore red handkerchiefs on their heads and Paddington wore green and that was the only distinguishing feature between the, the two teams so I don't know if the mayoress has worked out, this is the mayoress of Paddington, because they were raising money for a Paddington bed for the Royal Women's Hospital. and she, So, I don't know if she actually realised that her carnival was just this foil that had been created to draw New South Wales affiliates away from the ladies' match or not, but you get the sense that she had been promised a ladies' match and she was going to have a ladies' match at her carnival, and what I'd like to know is, what did these guys do? Did they go and raid a local school or something to, to put this on the field? It's quite, quite a strange thing that's going on. OK, so what happened in the end? Why is this not working? Oh, OK. Oh, I'm going backwards now. Oh, I see. You roll it. OK. And what I thought I'd just give you is a little touch that this would have been a very embarrassing part of the day, all these teenagers out there supposedly playing right and they didn't know the rules, they didn't know anything. So who took it on, but the future president of the New South Wales Rugby League, who was a senior selector at the time, founder, founder of East, he actually took on the job of refereeing this match. And quite a few press reports, and I think this is the only bit of dignity in the whole thing, they mentioned that he wore a blue blazer. <laughs> Alright, so how's this story end? Oh, hang on. All right, with the women's match, what actually happened? All right, this is what they said about Ulla Stakepool very early in the match. Stakepool soon made it plain there were no I beg your pardons about her tackling and her code was universal. They put on a good football match. They'd been for, training for three nights a week in the lead-up to this match. Okay? And basically, the crowd, they said the crowd came to jeer, but they stayed to cheer. It was actually a lot of fun, you know? And they played good footy. OK. Yes, of course, Delhi Messenger <laughs> defied the ban, right? as did one of the teams from the city houses, and they sort of regrouped and gave themselves a different name. And I think some South Sydney juniors might have actually been involved in the match that was staged, which was called City versus Country Juniors. But this is the tone of the reporting that followed all this. This is from the Sydney sportsman, and this is what he said about these fellas. The league made itself look ridiculous in the eyes of its numberless followers, when it decided to disqualify any players under its jurisdiction taking part in this fixture at the Agra, the juniors showed what they thought of this Zari's threat for taking it on like the old warhorse Delhi messenger. What they are going to disqualify Delhi from had all the crowd guessing. It's a pity... The hero of the early days of the league and the man who practically made it should be debarred from earning a few honest quid. And there we have a little bit of Gilton's foundation narrative. You can just see a glimmer of it there, coming back to haunt the New South Wales rugby league. OK, this is the last one. Oh, I've gone backwards, wrong way, Terry. OK, and this is the star that emerged on the mat, in the match. She was a winger for the Metropolitan Blues, who won the match. She scored four tries, a 15-year-old girl by the name of Maggie Maloney from Surrey Hills, South. And her nickname, by the way, was South. All right, all right, and I might leave it there.
1: So lastly today, we have Melissa McMahon giving her presentation, Unlucky 13, Amateurism as a Weapon of War in Vichy, France. Uh, So this story is one that is becoming uh, increasingly well known, thanks in large part to Mike Rylance's book, Forbidden Game. So in this presentation, uh, Melissa really builds off the Rylance book in a number of interesting ways, explores the story from some different themes, and I think shows that there's really a lot of meat still on the bones of this story. So I'd love to see where her research takes her, because I was uh, quite captivated with this presentation. So let's get straight into it now.
2: All right. Um, I grew up in Eastwood and I went to school at um, Marsden over in West Ride um, where Wayne Pierce was a woodworking teacher. Mm-hmm. And I have to say coming back here there's nostalgia but it also uh, kind of strikes terror in my heart because I did not play sport well. Sp- Marsden was a very sporting school and sport was the torment of my life. I was a girly swat. I did not have a good time uh, at school. and So, you know, I've come a long way. Um, I, I wasn't interested in sport until much later in life um, and yet despite all that anxiety um, I still knew, I, I would still watch the grand final every year, I knew that my team was Parramatta, you, you just get bestowed, um, even though my parents were actually from Victoria so they were in AFL, um, you know interested in, in, uh, in the, or probably the VFL in those days. Um, When I went to university, um, kind of studied arts, philosophy, not a lot of the people around there... A lot of the people who were there were the people like me who got intimidated by people, by sports people, so there's not a lot of sports enthusiasm in those crowds. Um, And often, they wouldn't necessarily be openly hostile, maybe indifferent, but they'd kind of go, oh, that's mainstream populist commercial Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, it's not really got much depth to it. Um, when I started being interested in sport, it was a real, real news to me. I was stunned to realise that that opposition exists within sport. That within sport, there's one side that's pointing to the other side, going populist, commercial, dumb. Um, in the amateur-professional distinction, which stunned me when I found out that, you know, that there were players and gentlemen dressing rooms in cricket, for example. Um, it also stunned me that some of my friends who were interested in sport and who were kind of nominally, you know, left-wing, would nevertheless reproduce this prejudice, oh, commercial, not like, you know, the good honourable amateur codes. Um, and this is a bit of a tradition in the philosophy of sport that you have, these, you have an amateurist tradition and then you have kind of a critical Marxist tradition and both sides are really down on professional sport. Um, whether it's opium of the people, or whether it's um, craven professionalism. Now, unlucky 13, um, in French, rugby league is called rugby à 13, or 13's rugby, uh, as opposed to rugby à 15, which is rugby union. I'll probably just refer to them as rugby league and rugby union. It just depends on what's going to um, work best Uh, now I don't know how I think most of you know at least from the abstract that the French government banned rugby league in um, 1941 I'll just bring up the Oh, sorry there's a little notice in the official government journal that's kind of famous Um, this is a bit of a paraphrase Uh, Okay, the association, the rugby league association is dissolved having been refused approval. Um, They passed a law where all sporting organisations had to get approval from the state. Uh, The assets of the association are liquidated and transferred to the National Committee of Sports. State Secretary is responsible for this um, order. So dissolving the association called the French rugby league. Uh, Now, in 1988, the French government established an official commission to investigate um, the sports policy during the occupation in the Vichy government. Uh, Part of that looked at the situation with Rugby League and it concluded that the action against Rugby League uh, was the result of steps taken by the French Rugby Union Federation, which saw an opportunity to get rid of a dangerous rival. Um, Now, that's unquestionably uh, true. Um, People high up in Rugby Union were also high up in the government, um, rugby league was an enormous threat. I'll briefly uh, go through that, and uh, a lot of other, and, and so that really was an opportunity for them. That's kind of the micro element. I'm going to look a bit more at the sort of the macro element of the ideology of the Vichy government and why it favoured amateur sport over professional sport. Um, a bit of the history of amateurist philosophy in France, um, and it's important to say that amateurism as a philosophy particularly in France is very different to amateur practice, amateur sports there is no sense in which I'm knocking amateur codes amateur players and some of the amateurist ideals Um, but you get a really virulent strain of amateurist philosophy um, in France that's shown in its most sort of ugly face in this situation and it has sort of uh, Commonly being associated with authoritarian governments. Okay, so just a little bit of history. So rugby union first played in France in the eighteen seventies. In eighteen ninety, Pierre de Coubertin, one of the inst- one of the founders of the rugby uh, sorry rugby league, the Olympic uh, Federation, one of the main instigators of the modern Olympic Games sets up this uh, French Athletic Sports Society's groups and that will be the main governing body of rugby union until it gets its own federation in 1919-1920. 19, 19, 19, and you can see up there the first rugby union championship match was actually refereed by Pierre Ah uh, Now, in France, the schism sort of went the other way. Um, The Rugby Federation was beset by infighting, corruption, brutality uh, from the very beginning um, and, of course, um, shamitarism, um, so false amateurism, uh, which led to a schism where another group, sort of 12 of the most powerful groups, broke away in in order to try and reset to to start afresh with a proper amateur code. Uh, didn't work. They also got bogged down in problems. Um, it, w- it, it was a messy code. Um, in 1931 they were excluded from the Five Nations Championship for, uh, for the false pr- uh, amateurism, but also because of the. they were a nasty, brutal uh, team. Um, there were a couple of cases of players dying, a referee dying. Um, on and off the field there were lots of um, problems. Uh, Rugby League was first played in France in 1933. There's an exhibition match, Uh, so, Australian versus England. Uh, It was promoted as an alternative (coughs) to Rugby Union because, of course, Rugby Union started to struggle after the ban because you didn't have test matches anymore, so they weren't playing at that high level. Um, Actually, there in the top corner is Harry Sunderland, who was the co-manager of the Kangaroos at that time. Um, He really was a hustler. He was very active in um, spearheading uh, rugby league in France. So, yeah, the game is effectively similar to Rugby Union, except that it's faster, more open and more attractive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and it was kind of like, get your rugby here. You know, we're good, maybe a bit better. You know, if you like your rugby union, you're going to love... Love the Rugby League.
3: Uh, Where are we going?
2: Uh, I've lost the... um, Oh no, there we go, there we go. Uh, Yes, creation of the French Rugby League. Um, Now, in 1924, there were 881 rugby union clubs that had dropped to 473 in 1939. Uh, Rugby... Uh, rugby League had grown to 225 uh, clubs. <laughs> Needless to say, Rugby Union uh, tried to sabotage Rugby League at every opportunity. It would tell uh, grounds that if they allowed Rugby League to play there, that, um, that they wouldn't play there. Um, yeah, that they, they were threatened and, and they were right to, to be scared. Now, in 1940, the Nazis invade France, and uh, an armistice was concluded. Um, France was divided into free France and occupied France. Uh, And that was where the um, Vichy government was set up. It was kind of um, set up at the tolerance... I mean, it's famously called the collaborationist government. It uh, introduced a lot of anti-Semitic policies. Um, And if you look at it, because it's the whole South section... This is really rugby union heartland in France. Um, in Australia, we think of uh, rugby union and rugby league as, as a kind of a class thing—the posh rugby union versus the working-class rugby league. There's a bit of that in France, but it's much more about um, city-country uh, rugby union being and, and north-south. So the kind of urbanised north, the very rural south. Um, it's very much about. Um, it, it's a country. It's a uh, well, peasant, peasant game, peasant game uh, of the land. Ah, uh, now, just go. Uh, weirdly enough, um, in response, th- there's no the humiliation of being in- invaded can't be uh, overstated. Um, weirdly enough. Though their response was to, uh, in some ways, emulate the policies of the Nazis, particularly in regard to rugby league. I'm having a bit of trouble again, here we go. Um, so, in 1940, so this is almost immediately after they set up the government, they um, set up a Commissariat General à l'Education Générale et au Sport, so a general commission for general education and for sports. It's quite common for government sponsored sporting programs to happen after defeats. They become convinced that they uh, lost because they were physically and morally deficient, um, and that to develop an esprit de corps and a sense of pride, you need to, um, and physical strength, moral strength, you need to um, develop a strong uh, public sports. Program, um, So just as the, the Nazis had set up a very similar organisation in the mid-30s, um, they set this up. And there's no, there's no concealing the emulation of Nazi uh, imagery. Um, you know, it's not like they were implicitly fascist. That's a, that's a Nazi salute. And it's weird because you'd think they'd try and affirm their French identity, but in some ways there was, a, there was kind of self-loathing. Um, they... Uh, they thought that um, there was again a bit of a decision to return to sort of deep France, which is that south French south France the sense of blood and blood and soil that kind of discourse now uh, that's a And that's a picture of another sports. They had a youth organisation as well, the um, the sort of working groups of youth, the Chantier de la Je- Jeunesse. And, you know, great mottos, authority, discipline, justice for all. Um, now, I've completely forgotten how long I've been going for, Terry. That's
0: the 12.30 now, so about 10 minutes
2: or so we've got. To the 20-minute mark or the 30-minute? To minute? the 30-minute mark.
0: Have I been speaking for 30 um, minutes? 20. About
2: About 15. Okay, good. Oh, well, not good, but. um, (laughs) Yeah, okay, look, let's just. Ugh. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep going. Um, Okay, so there's already calls. It all happens in 1940. Um, The minister. The family and youth, calls for professional sport to be banned. Basically, he sees it as kind of corrupting the youth. Um, and then they ask a guy called Paul, Paul Voivnel who used to play for Toulouse and is a rugby enthusiast. Oh, I'm losing it again. Ah... Uh, They ask... This is the calls for... So, for a healthy and robust race, ban professional sports. It's never quite clear to me why banning professional sports means people are, health, are healthier. Anyway, Paul Voivnell submits a report. Um, he is a doctor. He, he's written, like, 51 books on rugby union. These are his kind of memoirs, his rugby memoirs, called My Beautiful Rugby. So, you know, he's not partisan or anything, he, you know. Um, so, his narrative is that, you know, rugby was pure and great and then got spoiled by success. Um, that Jean Gallier, a cunning businessman, came along and orchestrated a schism. Historically not true. It came in independently rather than a, as a breakaway group from Rugby Union. Um, two, two rivals You know, fought over everything, um, and the breakout of war relieved the lack of moral fibre um, in the general population as well as in sport. He recognised that the rugby union had moral problems. I'll just skip that. Okay, and this is kind of his summation. Is that large enough to read? Okay. So, the internal logic alone of this. Exposé leads to the conclusion, a single federation. So this is not an argument, it's the argument of kind of self-evidence. In other words, foregone conclusion. Just by reading this story, you can see that there just needs to be one. Modification of the rules, slight reduction in numbers. It's not really a different game. Uh, The suppression of rugby league. Suppression of professional rugby league, imperative. Again, without there being any need for explanation, an argument by way of not an argument. Amateur rugby league, desirable, it doesn't represent any advance on rugby union, on the contrary it demands too much training for something that must remain a game and not a trade. And there is there yeah, this idea that rugby league is inherently inclined towards professionalism because of the level of fitness required. Even if rugby league was safe from these criticisms, the need for cohesion calls for its rightful elimination, You know, rugby league cleared the gown, they led the way. Even if they weren't able to pull out the weeds, it preserves the essential benefit of the absolute purity of its origins as opposed to the pollution of dissidents. It created, it maintained, it sinned but is deserving of mercy. It must create, it will uh, recreate. So it's, you know, it's more of a sermon than a report. Okay, so I put it. I wasn't sure if it was going to be big enough. Um, so I mentioned Pierre de Coubertin. He's kind of the, um, you know, the godfather of French amateurism. Um, again, his amateurism was in response to um, the, the, the Franco-Prussian War defeat. Um, he uh, studied the English school system and became convinced that um, the reason for the English kind of expansion of success in the uh, 19th century was because uh, of schooling, of you know the, the way sport was integrated into their schooling. Special connection to rugby, philosophically obviously, because if you're inspired by the English school system, then you're inspired by rugby. You can't separate those two things. And personally, he refereed that game. Uh, now, the problem he had with professionalism was not just about playing for money, but also for attention. Um, the idea of sport as a spectacle, except as an edifying spectacle, um, he, he thought was morally uh, corrupting. Okay. This is where I kind of got a bit philosophical. So, it's basically kind of... I think of amateurist philosophy as a bit of a hallucination because it, it has no connection to empirical evidence and it's completely resistant <coughs> to evidence. So. Despite the fact that if anything tells you about, you know, corruption, uh, French rugby union in the 30s is... is, is there is no, none of the moral virtue that education and amateur sport is supposed to give you, and yet it preserves its benefits because of its principle. And by extension, however good rugby league is, its essential corruption means that, you know, it can't... Uh, um, Amateurism kind of... Professional sport forms a threat to an authoritarian state because it's a rival for, you know, the power over hearts and minds. Um, The power of sport had been very clear since the 19th century and they needed to control that. Um, If you're going to be demonstrating virtue and excellence on the field, it better be in the name of the state. Um, You don't want to have a better player. Uh, and this is kind of the last thing. Uh, the thing that is notably missing from the amateurist uh, ideal is the idea um, of pleasure. Even though sometimes people define amateur sport as something that's played for pleasure, there's no fun in this vision of sport. Um, all that playing for the country, it sucked, they've kind of sucked the joy out of both playing and watching sport um pleasure in sport relies on a certain lack of seriousness which is the opposite of the model they're giving and you know once you try and give that pleasure some kind of transcendent purpose it's a bit like explaining a joke you kind of destroy it they conducted a survey on uh, sports participation under the vichy government there was indeed a big increase but when they asked them why do you play sport they said for fun it wasn't very enjoyable living under wartime conditions. They played sport to distract themselves from the hardships. And here's a contrast, I think, between the British attitude. Even though amateurism is supposed to be inspired by Britain, I feel like the French have a very different, because, maybe because of a polemic attitude towards amateurism, which I don't think the British have. Um, and this is kind of a symbol of it. Um, and this comes from um, Thomas Keneally's Tom Brock lecture back in... 2004, I think. In 1940, so the very, exactly the same time that they're setting up this uh, confederation of sports to kind of inculcate moral virtue um, and and wipe out rugby league, a message from the British Ministry to the British Rugby League Council in 1940. It desires as much football to be played as possible, so as to provide recreation and relaxation to the workers. And that's kind of it. So...
1: That's it. <laughs> okay, so that's it. So we'll be back tomorrow with part three of the Rugby League Reflections Conference. Love to hear your thoughts. The Rugby League Digest at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Give Tom Brock a follow on both of those platforms, and we will speak to you tomorrow.